Hi, I'm Riley Fessler. I'm a podcast producer here at the DSR Network, which means that my job is to make sure that we have great content and great guests across all of our shows. Our programming is supported by our members, and for that, we are truly grateful. I hope that you'll consider becoming a member to support the work that we do. Members receive an ad-free listening experience, bonus content for nearly all of our shows, early access to episodes, enhanced show notes, and access to our exclusive DSR Slack and Discord communities. Membership is just $7 per month or $70 per year. To become a member, please visit thedsrnetwork.com forward slash buy. That's thedsrnetwork.com forward slash buy. Thank you very much for your support. This is Words Matter with Norm Ornstein. We've got the votes and screw the rest of you. And Dr. Kavita Patel. These might be some of the smaller moments, you know, with all the bombshells. Didn't catch people's eyes. Hello and welcome to another episode of Words Matter podcast between myself, Kavita Patel, and my co-host, the amazing Norm Ornstein, where we try to analyze, I'd like to say we use the same kind of tagline, Norm, each week as we're leading listeners and and, uh, viewers of sorts online about what we're addressing with Words Matter, and we had put this around the elections. It's gotten so much broader than that. So I'll say that uh, each week we try to look at how words actually matter, because they do. And so uh, Norm, how are you doing? I know that you've had a busy week with uh, some ongoing screening of your documentary. If you want to do a little plug for any any uh, anybody who wants to find it online, please do a plug and tell us how you're doing. So if you can, wanted to watch a documentary uh, about where we could actually go on criminal justice and mental illness, go to doifilm.com for definition of insanity. And uh, depending on when this podcast gets out, if you're around D.C. on Thursday uh, this evening at the D.C. Jewish Community Center, there'll be a screening followed by a panel. uh, And that panel tonight is going to be on resources available. So for anybody who has a crisis or a deep issue, we did a screening last night, and there were lots of people there with family members uh, with serious mental illness and no insight, and therefore a real uh, crisis in trying to get them help. And we'll be talking about the resources available tonight. And even if uh, we might not be able to have the pod live when when things air tonight, but I think just I'll say myself having seen the documentary and like a very interesting discussion that followed afterwards, it is a must watch. So anyone who's listening who has either zero to what you might think are well-defined opinions about um, mental health or the correctional system or any of the themes in between, I, I encourage you to watch it. So you've been, I know you've been busy, Norm, is what I'm trying to also, what I gather, I, I suspect you've had long days, so we're excited to be here with our listeners. And we're going to take, we're going to try to take this in some chunks. Um, some of the latest news has to do with the Supreme Court hearing the Colorado case that Donald Trump is asking for a reexamination of sorts, and hopefully the Supreme Court will make 
the right decisions. I say that with a lot of open my my voice, but that's a topic that we'll be we'll touch on, but is going to be well covered by some of our colleagues on Deep State Radio. So we want to encourage people who are not listening to that already to put that on their subscribe list. So we thought we would take a little bit of a potpourri because there's still more to talk about with President Trump. And I'll let you lead into that. But first, let's take a moment to see. Let's talk about the uh, health of our presidential candidate, Donald Trump, and the health of Joe Biden. President Joe Biden released his full physical yesterday, done by the staff physician, who um, Kevin Connor, Kevin O'Connor, who replaced Ronnie Jackson, who we now know as a result of a very thorough Inspector General report, had been handing out um, narcotics and uh, nar- let's just say scheduled drugs and narcotics, uh, inclusive of that, like candy. And we aren't kidding. So this was a fresh look at uh, the president's physician with an update. And I think every year the president goes through this kind of intense physical and every year the public gets this report. Norm, I would say that in 2024, a lot more eyeballs were on that report. And I'll just say there was nothing noteworthy. It was all the usual. In fact, to be honest, as someone who takes care of people that are about the president's age, one of the most clean physical exams and medical histories I've seen in a long time. And he's got a couple of chronic conditions, cholesterol, atrial fibrillation, some things that he takes medication for. But I will say this is a pretty pristine bill of health. I did think it was noteworthy that they had a pretty thorough section on the neurological exam for a physical, which is something we all do. And I thought they went out of their way because I think they felt like they had to, that they didn't need to do any kind of thorough like cognitive or that they, they didn't perform a cognitive test, but they also saw no signs of dementia or reasons or stroke or any of the things that I know have been plaguing kind of rumors around the president when he's made public appearances. But I know we also have a health check on Donald Trump. And in this case, he administered it himself. Tell us more about that, Norm, and, and what the former president said. Oh, I was I just uh, laughed this morning as I saw Paul Krugman had reported that uh, Trump said, and I quote, there's no cognitive problem. If there was, I'd know about it. Uh-huh. Yes. Exactly. That's a pretty impressive one, isn't That's it? That's impressive. And, you know, when Trump uh, trumpeted that uh, he had taken this intelligence test, man, woman, person, camera, TV, and he'd repeated it, which showed how smart he was. Uh, you know, uh, uh, last year I had an ear infection and I went to a, a minute clinic at a CVS and they took down my information, including my age. And they said, we're now required if you're uh, over 70 uh, to do this. And they gave me five words and said, um, uh, you know, we're going to repeat those or ask you to repeat them at a later point, because when we ask you these questions, we have to see if there's any sign of dementia. So this is not an intelligence test, but now we know that Trump couldn't pass a cognitive problem test. Uh, and of course, we've seen that with all of his, uh, you know, misstatements, issues, inability to speak. The one who has a cognitive problem is Donald J. Trump. He has more problems than that. And I did think, you know, Joe Biden is finally doing something uh, to at least take on the age issue a little bit. 
He went on Seth Meyers' show, uh, which is a late night show on NBC. It was their 10th anniversary. He had been there, actually, long before he was president, when he was vice president at their first show. And Seth Meyers asked him about his age and said, you know, the other guy is almost as old as I am, and he can't even remember his wife's name. So there we go. Um, we know we know the sense of humor, Gene, and its expression are intact. That's for yeah. sure. So It's, it's yeah. also um, one thing I did notice, and I've noticed this before, and I think it okay. contributes to the perceptions about Biden. He walks stiffly. He bends over a little bit. And people see that as a sign of infirmity. It's actually, uh, and this is true of many people, he's had some back issues in the past. But we also know from watching him that he is an extraordinarily fit man uh, for his age. So this is not a sign of uh, anything uh, debilitating other than he's got a little stiffness in his back. Yeah, absolutely. So I completely agree and uh, would almost say, um, I I would say that uh, the physical not only reinforced the stiffness in his spine, his hips, you know, and the president's kind of talked about that. And and by the way, all kind of, again, being incredibly objective, this is like the most pristine physical I've seen in a long time and his blood pressure and everything. So, all right. So we made a comment already about the president's self-assessment, former President Trump's self-assessment of his health. Let's talk about the health of his legal suits and troubles. And Norm, again, reminding listeners to go listen to Deep State Radio for what will likely be a dive into kind of the Supreme Court agreeing, agreeing to hear Trump's plea, Trump's appeal against the Colorado case. But Tell tell us, Norm, like how one any comments on that that you want to just touch on, so we say it here for listeners to hear, and then deeper dive into this is not just one, but several, you know, one in a series of like completely mounting problems with the former president's defense on everything and his legal woes, his financial woes. Give us your kind of like highlights on those issues as well. So start with Supreme Court if you want, and then kind of build from there. So we know that the uh, D.C. Circuit took a lot of time to come up with its ruling, this uh, panel. And when it came out with it, uh, our common reaction, the reaction of the lawyers who are intimately involved with the courts was, okay, the bright side of this is that they've come up with this powerful, crafted opinion, and there's nothing more the Supreme Court needs to do. Then the Supreme Court took quite a bit of time before issuing its statement and ruling yesterday. And what's clear to me is there was a substantial amount of back and forth among the justices. They had two options. One was to say, okay, we're just going to let this ruling stand because it says it all and then enable a trial to move forward expeditiously. The second was to grant cert and basically do what they've done, which is to schedule an argument for late April, which means possibly a decision in June, which means no possibility of starting a trial until, say, September, and a trial that could take months and in the heat of a general election campaign. So it means 
that there is a 90 plus percent chance that this gets put off until after the election. And I would just say, this is about presidential immunity. The idea that a president has absolute immunity is farcical, but in effect, what the Supreme Court has done is if Donald Trump wins, then there will be no trial and any action against him would be put off and he will pardon himself. And this Supreme Court is likely to say, okay, with that, the court has in effect given him immunity. That's what I was Okay. So you feel, I have heard a number of talking heads, pundits, you are one of them, to be honest about kind of, and it didn't seem that there was so much consensus because I think, I think it was, um, I think Norm Eisen, uh, nowhere near as much as you're my favorite Norm, but I think Norm actually kind of went on, it was not MSNBC, it was CNN, I think, and kind of made the point that like he still is holding out hope that the decision would come prior to the election. You feel, Norm, just explain a little for myself and others why you think that this is likely to be after the election, other than the very obvious that this is a political court, but Tell me more. It, it is possible uh, that this could still happen. Judge Chutkin had said that there should be a three-month period to get ready for this trial. Judge Chutkin can say, you know what? We're going to shorten that, and actually we're going to start it now with an anticipation that we will have a trial. And then maybe they could start a trial in July. But you're talking about a trial starting around the time of a convention. and that's still tricky, but it, you know, there's a slim chance that this could happen, but we don't even know if the court is going to come up with its decision in June. And, uh, I think it just greatly reduces the chances of a trial there. Uh, you know, the other thing that we could say here, Kavita, is that when Alvin Bragg the, uh, in New York had announced that he was bringing criminal charges against Trump, what's widely being reported in the press inaccurately as a hush money story because it's an election interference story. It's giving hush money to Stormy Daniels to interfere in the outcome of the presidential election. And it was widely decried. You know, why is he interfering? This is a minor case. Let's go forward with the January 6th case with the even more powerful cases in Georgia and in Florida. But now we can say thank you, Alvin Bragg, because at least one trial involving Trump's criminal behavior will take place at an early point in March. Uh, but, you know, the other cases right now, we're already seeing, of course, Aileen Cannon. You know, I've said many times before, Trump has at least one competent lawyer on his side, and it's Judge Aileen Cannon in Florida, who's done everything to protect him. If I'm uh, Jack Smith, the uh, special counsel here, I don't see any downside at this point to trying to get her to recuse uh, uh, recuse from the case. But, you know, it's, it's at least possible that the only trial going forward before the election to shine a spotlight on Trump's criminal behavior will be the one in New York. And that would be, I think, uh, a tragedy of great proportions. The American people will not have a chance. Uh, those who don't pay a lot of attention to this stuff on a day-to-day -day basis will not have a chance to look at the unprecedented criminal behavior 
of a potential president. Right. So just a little more education about New York and where we stand with the New York case. So we have we've had three cases in New York. One, this criminal trial going forward. Two others, the E. Jean Carroll uh, case, uh, a judgment of uh, over $80 million uh, against Trump. And then the case brought by the Attorney General, uh, Tish James, which has resulted in a, uh, a judgment. And now uh, the uh, penalties and fees have amounted to over $450 million. That was for uh, you know fraud, basically, on the part of Trump downplaying uh, the uh, value of his properties for tax purposes and vastly, wildly exaggerating them to get loans. Um, and I should add that uh, the uh, Leona Helmsley, the late hotel uh, heiress uh, in New York, got 18 months in prison for doing just what Trump did. This is just a civil judgment. But what's happened this week is in some ways almost laughable. We know Trump's history, even going back to when it was reported in 2016, that what he would do on a regular basis is he would hire contractors to work on his construction, development, properties. He would hire laborers to do that work. And then he would go to those contractors, refuse to pay, He'd have an army of lawyers. These were, you know, middle class at best people. And when they didn't get paid at all and they were ready to go bankrupt, Trump would come in and say, I'll give you 10 cents on the dollar or maybe 20 cents on the dollar. He would stiff his workers who were making minimum wage or a little bit better, and they had no recourse whatsoever. And now he's trying to do it with the courts. He has to put up a bond involving more than the amount that he has uh, been assessed if he's going to appeal. And he went to the court and said, you know, how about if I just put up like a quarter of it? He's trying to settle with the courts of the United States in the same way that he tried to screw his contractors and laborers, but it doesn't work. And what it says is, one, Trump doesn't have the money. He can't put it up on his own. Two, uh, so this guy is nowhere near as rich as he is purported to be. Two, he can't find lenders who trust him to put up more of that money with the expectation that they'll get repaid with interest down the road. So he's got enormous financial pressure, but also it puts a spotlight on the fact that this guy whose self-image is the man who is a multi-billionaire because of his brilliance. It's a Potemkin village of uh, of wealth. So it's it's a Potemkin village of wealth, but it's a kind of a game of playing the clock out too, as as well in all of these cases. And do you put any credence into kind of the um, headline coming out of uh, both Michigan and South Carolina's primaries, where that Trump's kind of smaller dollars don't your smaller dollar donors have dwindled and that even his overall fundraising has kind of decreased compared to previous kind of index, you know, eight years ago. Um, what do you make out of like, you know, is, is as time moves forward, Norm, do you suspect that these coffers will get repleted 
We also know that this is why Trump is trying to get, you know, family into the RNC seat because it becomes his own bank, essentially. Uh, but, you know, I, I can see that, like, it's a Potemkin kind of village, but I can see Trump making these moves in between. And I, I hate to say it, winning, but making some progress? Or do you see it differently in terms of the cash on hand, the willingness of a GOP base as it, as it becomes ever so clear that he's the heir kind of apparent? Um, what do you think financially that looks like? So this is really interesting, Kavita, because if he is able to get the Republican National Committee with his daughter-in-law, Lara Trump, and you know basically loyalists stacking it, to agree that they'll funnel the money coming to the RNC for his uh, legal uh, expenses and the uh, assessments against him, it screws the Republican Party because it means that money that otherwise would go to their campaign, the campaign not just for president, but for the Senate, the House, and state houses, is not going to be there. And that's a real problem for them. But it's also the case, I think, that once it becomes known that the RNC is basically going to launder the money that's supposed to go for Republicans, are they going to get the same donors putting that money in? I don't uh, know. Yeah. I doubt it very much. And so, it, you know, it, it adds to the dilemma here. I do want to, since you raised South Carolina and Michigan, do a little mini rant on journalism. Yeah. Oh yeah, we didn't get to tape. Yeah. We we talked about what we think, but we now have had uh, primaries from both. So yeah. yes, please actually do do an update and and and, and your mini rant. Go ahead. So here we have uh, South Carolina, <laughs> and Donald Trump gets fifty eight point eight percent as the heir apparent and former president, and Nikki Haley coming at forty percent. The headlines: the Washington Post, the New York Times, the AP are basically Trump sweeps to easy victory. And I tweeted at the time, here's a prediction. When Joe Biden gets 80% or more in Michigan, uh, vastly outdistancing what Trump did, the headline is going to be Democrats show real cracks uh, in their loyalty. And what we saw with many of these headlines, the New York Times, uh, the most egregious, I think, as Trump got, you know, lost 30% or more in Michigan, not the home state of Nikki Haley, showing that this Republican Party has significant numbers of voters who really don't want Donald Trump back. But the headline basically was easy victory for Trump. Democrats have problems. Biden did better in Michigan than Trump did on the Republican side. But the framing that we're seeing from journalists, which is done over and over again, which I view as serious journalistic malpractice, gives Trump a pass and Republicans a pass. And basically, it's all about Democrats in disarray. Now, I'm not suggesting that the 30 or 40 percent voting against Trump Republicans in the primary are all going to defect from the party in a general election. It's still a tribal world. But it shows a weakness there that is almost completely ignored uh, by uh, our, our uh, mainstream media. And it's not a great thing to frame it that way because it's not accurate. No, it's not. 
No, it's not accurate. No, you're absolutely right. And I think we're going to try to get into some of the, that's just one of many issues with kind of mainstream media. Do you want to make any comments while we're on kind of South Carolina and Michigan about um, Nikki Haley and kind of where you see her future winding up? So I, I don't think Nikki Haley has uh, fully figured out where she's going to go with this. Um, it is a very good thing that she stayed in this race, in part because it really does uh, turn a focus to the reality, even though she's getting uh, beaten uh, in these uh, primaries, that uh, Republicans are not united at this point. Now, a part of this may be a an outside chance and hope that all of this will come crashing down on Trump that uh, has been uh, hurt a little bit by the Supreme Court decision, that if he had been convicted on uh, the January 6th charges, that it might have been a collapse in his campaign. Uh, I frankly think that the odds of the Republican Party turning to her under those circumstances would be very slim, but at least I think there may be a little hope there. It may be that she's hoping that because Trump will turn out to be a disaster for the Republican Party, that in 2028, they might turn to somebody who is more of a mainstream figure, which is what she's trying to portray herself as, a mainstream conservative. Or it may be that in its desperation uh, at a later stage, no labels will go to Nikki Haley and say, you don't have a future as a Republican. Why don't you run on a no labels ticket? Uh, but I don't know if she's figured out yet what her future is uh, in politics. And maybe this is a last hurrah for her, which I think would be all right as well. Yeah, I think so too. I'm, I'm in the same camp. I know that there are a lot of people that are talking about this kind of third part. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm in the same boat as you are. So in other words, let me, let me rephrase it nicely. Not so much there, there, and we don't need to talk about it more, but I do think it's a, it's an interesting, oh, and then, sorry, I'm going to keep adding listeners, please apologize. While we're adding, before we get into our members only section, which keeps in the theme of elections, we're going to talk about Mitch McConnell's uh, recent announcement. And I want to clarify this. Everyone thinks he's retiring from the Senate. That is not true. He is retiring from his position as Senate minority leader, just to be clear, leader of the Republican Party in the Senate, uh, which is in the minority at this time, and is still going to still stay on in the Senate. So I think that's just an important distinction because I think the headlines were kind of confusing and misleading that made it seem like he was stepping down and not seeking reelection. He's just not going to seek reelection to be much in the same vein as Pelosi he is not going to be the leader of the party in the Senate. So, uh, but before we get to the McConnell members only section, just anything you want to add about what came out of Michigan for Biden, because normally we wouldn't have a conversation about a Michigan primary for a seated and current president. However, I think there were a lot of people maybe making too much norm out of um, groups that did not vote or did not feel comfortable supporting the president uh, because of his stance on the Middle East? What, what was your take? So uh, one part of context here is that in 2012, uh, somewhere close to 12 percent uh, in when Obama was marching to the nomination, uh, voted uncommitted. Here, uh, Biden got 13% uncommitted. Now, the turnout was vastly larger. 
uh, and that's 100,000 people. And in a state where the margin in 2020 was 100,000, you got to be concerned about it. And there were two groups of voters, and there are two groups of voters that Biden has to be concerned about, some young progressive voters and who are not happy with uh, Gaza and the very substantial Muslim American vote, uh, which is concentrated in Dearborn. Um, and they're even less happy with, uh, with Biden. Um, we don't know where all of this is going, frankly, because we don't know exactly where uh, Gaza and Israel and uh, the entire Middle East are going. It's possible, since we're still many months away from the election, that we'll end up with a ceasefire, the release of hostages, and uh, beginning of reconstruction. And now we've also seen a good portion of the Palestinian Authority leadership, which has been weak and corrupt uh, on the West Bank, um, maybe changing, they're leaving, and we might get a more robust group. I mean, we could imagine a more positive outcome there. If not, it's a problem for Biden. But having said that, the context of this that, uh, you know, roughly uh, just a tiny larger percentage voted uncommitted compared to when Obama was uh, marching to reelection, um, it's overblown to suggest that this is, you know, a deeper problem. There is a problem with, a, uh, with an enthusiastic base that the president has to deal with. But there are lots of ways of doing that, and I think and hope the campaign is uh, aware of them. Yeah. Okay. That's good. All right. Well, then, let's. Uh, we want to thank our listeners and wrap up this portion of Words Matter. Thank you for joining us. It would be incredibly helpful if you could rate, review, subscribe to this feed on your favorite podcast player. We're on all of them, and we hope you share this episode with your friends on social media. If you like this and want more. Please, please become a member of the DSR Network where you get access to the bonus segment. We're going to talk about Mitch McConnell in a second and bonus segments for a lot of our pods, including newly added pods that are coming on board. Feels like they're pretty frequent. I'm sure our producer feels that way too. But Words Matter is a production of the DSR Network. Our executive producer is Chris Cottonoir for the DSR Network and our favorite producer for Words Matter, Riley Fessler. Next episode will be in your feeds in and around March, I'm going to say 5th or 6th, and we'll see you soon. 